welcome back to another episode of Dr. Me First. It's me, your colleague in medicine, coach in life, queen of burnout, throwing in a little sass there, Dr. freaking Aaron Wiseman. I gotta practice what I preach. I'm a recovering workaholic and rest is my detox. <laughs> so my team is pushing me to try to do more rest. I have really been invigorated since I got my new office and my podcasting equipment set up back full time. It's been so fun to be podcasting again and doing live episodes. But they're reminding me too that I'm overworking. So we are problem solving this. And in order to do that, we are doing a reboot showcase. All my work that I've done in the past, I might as well reuse it, right? Recycle, reduce, reuse. And so what we're going to do in this reboot showcase is take old podcast episodes that I've actually been on for other people and play them here on Dr. Me First. It makes me smile a little bit as I go back and listen to years ago when I was doing some of these podcasts. And I'm like, wow, I was really smart. I knew a whole lot of things. But I also see how I've changed and how things are different. <laughs> In the world of Aaron Wiseman, we call it, is it long-haired Aaron or short-haired Aaron? Because <laughs> you can definitely see a big change when the hair got lopped off during the pandemic. So listen to the episodes and then see if you can tell when I did that episode on the timeline of everything Aaron Wiseman. Long-haired Aaron, short-haired Aaron. Give me an email. I'd love to hear about it. I'm going to take my own medicine, I'm going to rest a little bit, and I'm still going to pop up episodes for you to listen to. So enjoy this reboot today. And as always, friend, remember, your life, your calling, your pulse absolutely matters. And the badass in me honors the freaking badass in you. Enjoy! Welcome back to another episode of The Doctor's Dilemma. I'm your host, Dr. Adil Mansour. This is the podcast where we discuss the challenges, the dilemmas that physicians overcome to have the opportunity to practice medicine. Welcome back to another episode of The Doctor's Dilemma. As always, I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast series. Today, I have another great guest. Her name is Dr. Erin Wiseman. She is also, like me, a DO, an osteopathic physician. She's a, also a life coach. She is, like me, a podcaster, but much more successful. And she's a fierce advocate for wellness in medicine. She's a graduate of Oakland City University, where she received her bachelor's degree in biology in 2007, and subsequently completed her medical school training at Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences in 2011. She faced professional burnout early in her career and speaks openly about her story in order to help others, particularly female physicians and working moms, know that they're not alone. Dr. Wiseman wholeheartedly believes to be a healer. She lives and practices life coaching and medicine in rural southwestern Indiana, loves her role as a farmer's wife, athlete, and mother of three. She's interested in using her medical knowledge beyond the standard outpatient clinical realm through innovative technologies, public speaking, writing, and social media, as well as utilizing her business skills in organization, team leadership, and creative problem solving. 
You can find out more about Dr. Wiseman on our podcast, Dr. Me First, our website, truthrx.com, or hang out with her on social media at truthrx. Well, Dr. Wiseman, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so how has your day been, uh, you know, living in Indiana, uh, in the rural aspect of Indiana and being a, a farmer's wife? What's that like? Can you share oh, that? It's, it's a little hectic this year. We uh, have had so much rain here in the Midwest that all of our um, planting is pretty far behind. And it's typically all done at this point. It's typically been done for weeks now, but we are struggling. And so... There's a lot of farmers that have just given up and are going to take preventative planning. And for my non-agricultural friends out there, that means essentially that you you tell your insurance company, hey, I'm cashing in my crop insurance for this year because there's not going to be anything out there. So it's going to be an interesting year in agriculture. Wiseman Farms is still hammering through. I'm going to make my husband park the planner here in a couple days and take me on vacation. So then he'll have to stop. But it's good right now. It's sunny. It's beautiful. Um, it's a typical Indiana summer, and we're trying to enjoy it as much as possible. Awesome. Uh, I've never been to Indiana. Well, not yet. How hot does it get there? Well, we definitely experience all four seasons here. So I was going to say in the later July, August, we occasionally will get up to like 100, but usually somewhere between 80 and 95 is where we hang out, and we have a lot of humidity. So it's definitely not like our friends down in the southwest with their dry heat. And then, like I said, we experience all the seasons, so autumn is beautiful. The winter, we definitely get our, our mix of snow and ice. And then, of course, spring comes back around with all the beautiful flowers. Awesome. Uh, you mentioned, I, I'm just curious, the fact that you know, the farmers have to cash in their insurance this year. Has that or does that happen relatively often or has that been happening more often than usual? Um, typically, you know, you don't want to utilize those insurance policies until you absolutely have to. So it's kind of the equivalent in medicine is like catastrophic insurance. You know, like mm-hmm. you don't use that policy until like you're in the ER needing a quadrigital bypass surgery. And so it's interesting how agricultural insurance is set up. They base it off the average of the past either five to ten year crop yields, whatever you've made before on that field or on that property is how you can insure it. And there's, of course, different ways that you can insure your ground and that sort of thing. But no, it's, it's not typical to use it because then um, it's kind of like when you get in a car wreck and your car insurance goes up, it'll definitely be adjusted for next year for, for folks who are having to do that. I see. Sounds like a tough year out there, but uh, you going on vacation will definitely be of help, it sounds like, and you'll definitely get to rest a bit. Yeah, I tell people I got to go get my vitamin C, and that's SEA <laughs> in landlocked Indiana. <laughs> so, uh, tell us, you know, tell us your journey, your story. Like, um, what is the main reason that propelled you into pursuing medicine? Was it a personal choice, or did someone influence you to become a physician? No, it was a personal choice. The little story that I always like to share was my dad was a big auction attender when I was a little kid. And I remember at one point he bought this whole bundle box of books for like a dollar. And of course, like I rummaged through it and found these medical encyclopedias. And I was like, hmm, took those back with me. And they be kind of, they did. Those four books became my Bible. And I remember sitting and just reading about the intricacies of the body and just looking at the anatomy and 
all the different diagrams they had in there. And, and I remember being like an eight, nine year old kid, like being like, how does that baby's head come out of that pelvis? Like mm-hmm. I loved these books and continued to, to have them. My dad even actually still has them, but it was one fateful night. My younger brother was just sicker than a dog. And you know what I would do? Just go pull out my encyclopedia and like figure out what was going on with him. He had some belly pain. So I like started poking around on him Mm -hmm. and I got to that right lower quadrant and he just about punched my teeth out. (laughs) Um, And I remember telling my dad, like, I think he's got appendicitis. And my dad's like, oh, he's fine. He's just Mm -hmm. a little bit sick. Well, later through the night, he got worse. And my dad ended up having to take him to the ER and, he called a neighbor, then came stained with me, and I'll be damned, I was right. He did have appendicitis. <laughs> he actually ruptured. He had wow. peritonitis. So uh, he had to stay in the hospital for a while. But it, it was one of those kind of reaffirming facts, like, wow, like, I knew something and was able to, like, figure this out. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe this medicine thing isn't such a wild idea. I'm the first doctor in my family. Mm-hmm. And so... That was kind of my first reckonings with medicine. Um, I'm a farm girl. We raised poultry, particularly um, free-range chickens when I was growing up, mm-hmm. and we had a produce farm. And so um, taking care of those animals. And then another first anatomy lesson is my dad um, is a hunter, and I can remember helping him process a deer. Mm-hmm. And just looking at the just the amazing structures inside this beautiful animal and looking at a heart, looking at intestines, looking at like the fascia on the muscles and just how beautiful it gleamed. I would say I kind of fell in love with medicine from a pretty early age. And it was that that fascination that kept me going through high school and through college that I thought, yeah, I think I want to do this. And then when I started shadowing as a college student, Mm -hmm. I kind of noticed that these other doctors who had the letters D.O. behind their names Mm -hmm. were different. And I I couldn't quite pin down, like, what's the difference? And I remember asking one of the docs that I was shadowing, like, is a D.O., like, are you the same credentials as an M.D.? You know, the the general question. Mm -hmm. And he was like, absolutely. And he said, the best thing is we get to touch our patients and help and heal them in ways that, that comes with our training. And I thought that was so awesome. But my one takeaway point from working with those DOs was they smiled more. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that was something that I wanted in my life. Wow. So it definitely sounds like that being a physician is your dream job. I mean, correct to assume that? I think it was at one time. Yeah, I do. I think that there was just fascination that I, I loved about medicine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of contributed to my whole journey because I had had such great experiences. I'd went on a medical mission trip while I was in college to the Philippines and just got to do some really rural overseas medicine. And I kept having experiences that were just like, wow, wow, wow. But then when I got into medical training, things kind of started derailing. Now, I would love to get into how those aspects came about. But before we do, can you tell us about your experiences in getting into medical school? What med school preparations uh, did you undertake? And sure. Or- so um, I went, as you mentioned, my university, I played volleyball and soccer there. It was mm-hmm. not known to produce pre-med students. Um, pre-med was not even um, offered <laughs> mm-hmm. at my school. So I got a biology and a chemistry degree. Um, non-teaching because it was actually a more of an education-based, like a teacher-based college. Mm-hmm. And I think I was one of the first ones 
to ever sit for the MCAT. So mm-hmm. I sat for that in my junior year, mm-hmm. like the summer before my junior year. I had to go somewhere else across the state to take it. And I got an okay score. I had prepped for that. Um, I worked with my advisor. He was really excited at my university that I was even attempting the MCAT. So my school, he supported me and my school supported me with quite a bit of supplemental materials. Of course, like the lectures and stuff that I had done to that point in the classes and credits that I had earned helped. But then I had got um, like an MCAT prep book and that sort of thing. And so I went and took it, did pretty good on the science portion, did not do so good on like the writing portion. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I don't know if this is up to snuff. So went through and retook it. I don't remember the exact timeline when I took it again and got a little bit better score. I felt satisfied with it and I wanted to pursue it and start moving forward. So started going through all the the application service, submitting everything, getting stuff in. And I had kind of drawn a circle about seven hours away from home, which is Southern Indiana, Mm -hmm. and started to apply for schools within that, that circle diameter. So that would have been like, of course, at the time, IU, um, Indiana University was the only medical school in Indiana. And then Michigan, Kentucky, Missouri, Illinois were other ones that I was looking at. And my first one to go through and be given a interview for was at Kansas City, mm-hmm. um, the osteopathic school there. They call it KCU now, but it used to be KCUMB. Mm-hmm. And so loaded up a great friend from college and I, she said she'd come with me so that we could tag team driving because it's about a seven and a half hour drive and um, went out to Kansas City and just walked on campus and just had a great interview experience. I felt like it was one that they wanted me to be there. You know, it wasn't about, you know, scaring people off and failing people, but that like we really care about you. We really care about developing you into a competent clinician. We want you to be here. So after that, when I got my letter of acceptance, I canceled all the rest of my interviews. And Mm -hmm. I only went to one interview and one school, and then that was good enough. And so I don't know if that was impulsive, but it was good. It was good. And and I did enjoy my experience while, while there on campus. Wow, definitely sounds like the challenges that you had to face being in that part of the state and then having to go so far to be able to get into medical school were definitely something that were very difficult to overcome. But it sounds like you were able to do it. And especially because of the fact that you were also the first physician in your family. Did you feel like you had a lot of support from your parents or did you want did they want you to take another route? No, my, my dad is always very supportive as far as like, whatever you want to do, kid, you can do it. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Like would be there for me. I mean, my biggest hurdle, and it was probably one that I just self-imposed, but I thought because I wasn't going to like a big name school or an Ivy League school, like, are they even going to like consider me? And honestly, I think because I was so involved in my little college, um, like I said, I played college athletics. I was the president of the biology club. Mm-hmm. I was a RA on our, we only had one girl's dorm at the time, and mm-hmm. I was one of the RAs in it. Like, I think that kind of helped show my school that I was a very well-rounded person. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I would have had those experiences if I had gone to a larger university. So actually, I think that kind of worked out for me, even though I was severely worried about not having like the pedigree to go with it. So I would encourage any listeners out there who are kind of in that, oh, woe am I, you know, how can I compete? 
I would say, you know, just show up, show your best qualities. And it doesn't matter who stamps your diploma or what the name is at the top of it. If you've got what they are looking for and you present that, then you definitely have a chance um, of getting into a very good medical school. Awesome. I think that's uh, some really good advice. When it comes to your medical school experience, can you share with us what that was like? Were there any challenges, any dilemmas that you had to face and overcome? What was it like? Yes, it was the first time that I was ever really what I would consider far away from home. I mean, it was still within driving distance. It was just a pain in the butt to get home. Mm -hmm. But I felt very isolated. I ended up, you know, finding an apartment and, you know, I made friends rather quickly, but it was just different. It was a different town, a different state. So that was one factor. And then, you know, once you go from a, I felt like I was a big fish in a small pond, that then I was thrown into a lake with all these other big fish, mm-hmm. all these other smart people who had been at the top of their class. I never had that before. And so that was really challenging for me to not be ahead of the pack, you know, to be further back. Mm-hmm. And I had to really learn how I study best. You know, I'd always studied and, you know, you pick up little tips and tricks and and that sort of thing. But it was just so much different learning medical education and everything that kind of comes along with it. You know, the analogy that's always thrown out is, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. You just catch what you can. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't really been exposed to that depth of knowledge before. So that was a really big adjustment for me. And, you know, the other thing is, I'll be perfectly honest, I had a lot of self-doubt. Did I really want to do this? The financial aspect was big to me. Having to borrow that amount of money mm-hmm. made me want to puke every time it came around to, like, signing my loan promissory notes. Mm-hmm. So that was something that every time it came around, I was just, like, reevaluating, like, do I really want to do this? And I think one thing that really shook me during my medical school experience was when we had some classmates start to drop out. You know, one side of me was like, what in the world are they doing? They're throwing their lives away. What are they going to do? But then the other side of me was also kind of a little bit jealous, like, oh, maybe they figured out something different. Hmm. So it sounds like, you know, it's something that I've interviewed other guests, uh, something I myself have gone through. You know, I think, you know, jumping into this to medical school where you have the top minds from all over the country definitely gets us to, you know, step it up a notch. Do you feel like it took a little bit while or are you able to do it right away? It took a little bit of while. But, you know, I think also that was kind of when some self-harming behaviors started to be triggered in that environment mm-hmm. that we all like. I feel like most people going to medicine are very type A very perfectionistic. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm a competitive person. And though I don't think that was really bred at my school as far as like you have to like ranking each other against each other, mm-hmm. there was an underlying current of it that I, I don't think was that healthy, to be perfectly honest. I really think that when my school went away from grade levels and went to pass fail, mm-hmm. it was a much better system. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you got a B plus in anatomy, it's, did you know that knowledge and can you translate that over to being a good clinician? Mm -hmm. And so I see that as an area of growth for medical education that we need to work on changing wise because I think almost the trade schools get it better. And really that's what you're doing in medical school. You're learning your trade. Mm -hmm. Then why are we getting so hung up on the numbers and the testing and the scantrons when really we need to be evaluating people on how can we form them into the best clinicians that they're going to be moving forward? 
I, I definitely agree with you on that. So it sounds like you had a very interesting and tough four years of medical school, but it looks like you overcame them. What uh, attracted you to your current specialty of primary care and family medicine? So my road, road to family medicine, it's kind of a convoluted one. I'll be honest, I, I kind of loved everything that I did when I was doing rotations, or at least I found portions of it that I really, really enjoyed. And so I thought, well, family medicine makes sense because, you know, there's a little bit of everything in family medicine. But I think ultimately what made me decide on family medicine is at that time as an osteopathic student, you could match outside of the match. You could sign outside of the match into an allopathic residency. Well, there happened to be one just outside of my hometown in Evansville, Indiana, a family mm-hmm. medicine residency at Deaconess. I had, so I did my first two years in Kansas City as a DO. They send you out your third and fourth year typically. Mm-hmm. And so my core site was Evansville. So I got to know the program really well. It was close to home. And I did what I quote unquote thought would be the right answer and signed outside the match at, um, for family medicine residency. Some of that influence was because I was pregnant my fourth year of medical school. Mm-hmm. So we knew we had a baby coming on the way. You know, you can always look retrospectively and say, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy with family medicine. I got to learn quite a diversity of skills, take care of prenatal all the way through death. But I think ultimately it came back to location and just entry into the system. You know, I didn't have to go to a bunch of interviews for residency. I didn't have to travel all over again. Mine was kind of set. And to be honest, it was really, really good that way. Awesome. Sounds like you definitely planned it and, you know, went according to plan. So, you know, being a physician, especially a female physician in the system, uh, it's definitely a hectic job. Which hurdles did you personally face and how did you overcome them? Being a young female physician who often gets confused with the nursing student rather than the doctor, mm-hmm. um, I think there's a lot of social issues that we are still facing that I personally encountered all the time. Like, when is the doctor going to be here? Or can you get my doctor? Or being called by my first name or being called Miss Wiseman. Mm -hmm. Those were personal struggles on top of trying to navigate the system and figure out how to take care of patients and realizing that people don't follow the books and the Scantron answers that just make it more complex and complicated. Throw in motherhood to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then you have a whole bunch more uh, personal hurdles. So can you share with us any specific sort of challenges that you had to overcome? Because, you know, being a single mom during residency, which is, you know, which could be hectic and taxing both, you know, psychologically and physically, and being a mom on top of that, how did you overcome, you know, such challenges? Well, luckily, I wasn't single. Um, I was married at the time to Mm -hmm. my husband. And I think he was a huge champion in that. I don't know how anyone can survive without having some sort of support person to, I called him my fairy godmother, like just to keep things together. That was one way that we overcome it. The other thing is I'm a personality type that I just kind of put my head down and like plow through that wall. And just having that built up in me, that reserve um, helps me get through it. Though I think that reserve was not personally serving because as I learned through residency, after you graduate, you keep telling yourself it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's Mm going to get better. And what I realized after I graduated is it didn't get better. It was just a change of location. 
And so then I had to reevaluate kind of my coping mechanisms with how I get through adversity. Some of it, I had to stop just pushing through or just taking on every single task. You know, besides having my first child as an intern, I had a second child as a third year. Mm -hmm. I was chief resident. I was commuting about 45 minutes each way every day from where we lived to where the hospital was at. So I had to learn that I was not superwoman, even though I thought I was. So based on, you know, your hectic lifestyle and where you are currently, can you tell us about how you made the transition from working, say, a nine to five job and what you do now? Absolutely. So I'll rewind you a little bit from, you know, those first couple of weeks after I got out into resident, out of residency, I joined an employed physician practice and a pretty large physician group here in Indiana. Mm-hmm. But I got into it and I was like, wow, this is, this doesn't feel right. And I thought it was just because I had made so many transitions that, you know, it was a new job. Maybe it was because I was a new attending. Again, the self-doubt kind of set in, like, do I really know all of this? I did pass my boards. I was chief resident. Like, do I know my stuff kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And what I realized is that for so long, I had just been taking on, taking on, taking on obstacles and just getting through them, figuring out ways to, to get through them that I never actually sat back and thought, what ideally do I want my life to look like? What Mm -hmm. do I want my life to feel like? How do I want to show up each and every day? Because I had just been to that point, it had just been like a boxing match. And I just would go for another round and go for another round because like, that's what it was. You just kept going. You got through one year to the next to the next. But when you get out, it's like, this is life. This is what you've been training for. And I had a very rude wake up call, like, this is not the life that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the point, I'm a mover and shaker. I was like, okay, I'm done. Like, I tried this medicine thing. It didn't work. I'm going to apply, you know, to manufacturing. Toyota is in our area. I'm mm-hmm. going to try applying to other types of businesses, banking. You know, maybe I'll go try working at the local furniture company, you know, there's biodiesel, there's definitely biology jobs. But I mean, I was just like, this is not working. Every Sunday night, I mean, I was just this dark dread would just come into my house. And I couldn't explain it. There'd be mornings I'd drop my kids off at daycare, they'd be the first ones there. And I would just cry all the way into the office because I just was like, this feels horrible. I just knew I couldn't live like that anymore. And I kind of call those my dark days. Like when everybody was like, aren't you excited? You got a new job. You got the big paycheck, Mm -hmm. you know? And I was just like, this is miserable. That I was ready to exit medicine. So I did what we tell all of our patients not to do. Mm -hmm. And I got on the internet trying to figure out how to change my CV over to a resume because, you know, in the business world, they don't really care about what medical presentations you've done or what research Mm -hmm. you've done. Um, And I found this other physician out in California who was doing exactly that, helping doctors transition from a clinical position to something else. And I thought, perfect, this is what I need. I'm going to sign up for this online course. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be fine. And it was just amazing that when I started working through this process, like some of her first questions were, where do you want to be in five years? Like, what do you want your life to look like? What are your like long-term must-do-before-you-die goals? Mm-hmm. And those were things that I had been like, ah, that's not for me. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, I don't need to think about it. I'm going to be a doctor. But really, those are the exact things I needed to think about. And so the more I started working through that program by about week 
four or five, I was like, I got to talk to this woman. I got to get her on the phone. I got to talk to her. So I did what was called at that time, and I had no idea, called a discovery call. And she was actually a physician who was a life coach. And I got on the call with her and just started explaining like what was going on in my life and that I just felt stuck and I didn't know what to do, but I was so grateful for her program, but I felt like I needed more guidance. And she introduced me to life coaching and what that was. And we started working together and it was just like my world opened up and I couldn't believe what a big change I was making. Now, at that time, I was still working the same job. I was still dropping my kids off at the same daycare, but it was that mental shift that was huge. And I started working on myself and it wasn't really a rediscovering. To me, it was more of like an uncovering off of like, just imagine a hundred blankets on you and one at a time peeling them back and finding that girl underneath all of them. And it was just remarkable. And what that did is it helped empower me to then go into my professional setting and say, okay, this is who I am and this is how I want to align who I am with my professional work. Mm-hmm. How can we make that happen? So, you know, I did some small adjustments in the office that I was in, but eventually I completed that three-year contract and I realized that, you know, this is not the place for me. This does not align with who I am. You know, she made me do this exercise called core values and it was amazing and it helped me really redefine who I was at my essence. Mm-hmm. And so just really, really learned a lot about myself. And I thought, where's all the like young physician mom coaches at? And so in 2015, I went and got coaches training and then opened my own business, specifically trying to coach other physicians on like, hey, this is the stuff we were supposed to learn in med school. Mm-hmm. Forget about the Krebs cycle. Let's talk about core values. Let's mm-hmm. talk about I statements. Let's talk about that crazy mind chatter that's happening inside of your head and that we all have it and that it's never going to go away, but there's more productive ways of managing it. And it's been great since then, honestly. I call myself a doctor to doctors now because I feel like I'm doing really impactful work for my peers in a way that we don't get through our medical training. Absolutely. I think your transition into what you've done is a, you know, self-propelled transition. And it sounds like you're absolutely loving what you're doing. And I can just hear it in the excitement of your voice. You know, before, uh, you know, delve a bit more into what, what, you know, what more you do in terms of when it comes to helping physicians, can you share with us about what was it about your everyday job that you hated? Was it the fact that you were seeing a large number of patients and required to do so in a very small amount of time? And on top of that, have to do a lot of paperwork. What was it about your, your job that you just couldn't stand and you just didn't want to can do? Can I it? check all those boxes? <laughs> <laughs> You know, the the big global picture of what it was is that, remember the story about the girl with the appendicitis and taking care of her family's farm animals? Mm-hmm. And then flash forward about 23 years to the girl, the woman, mm-hmm. who is trying to do PAs. She's trying to crunch through notes. She's seeing people on 15-minute slots, sometimes double booked. She's dropping her children off. They're the first ones there and they're the last ones to leave at daycare. She was briefly seeing her husband, you know, Mm -hmm. long enough to say hi and I'm going to go crash somewhere. Please take care of the kids. Don't let them drown in the bathtub. 
She was the girl that loved going outdoors. She was the farm girl. She was, you know, brown as a berry every summer to she couldn't remember the last time that she saw sunshine except through a window. And so what really the essence of what happened with me and my burnout was that the passion and the love that I had for helping and healing others was not able to be performed in the setting for which I was doing it and for the schedule and the life that I was trying to lead. And you can name that on a number of factors, be it understaffing, be it EMR, be it insurers, be it working in a rural setting with limited amount of resources, Mm -hmm. any and all of that. But I think it comes back to that big fundamental is that I was not aligned with my passion and purpose. I see. So how do you exercise work-life balance now? Do you feel like it's something you need to do or now that you have your own niche, you're able to just call your own shots? Well, you know, that's the great thing that I learned is that one of my things that's really important to me is freedom of schedule, that I have to be the keeper of my calendar mm-hmm. and that it's so important for me to to have that control and to be able to say, yes, this is what I'm doing or no, this is not what I'm doing. And by being an entrepreneur, you know, I have my life coaching practice and I actually still practice medicine. Mm-hmm. It's just now on my terms. Mm-hmm. And I realized that was one of the huge fundamental shifts that I needed to change is that being in that particular employed setting was just so out of the line with what I needed. That was one area that once that shifted and changed, it was like the light shade was lifted and the light started coming in. And so that's where I think it's really important to know yourself. Another modification that I've made to my practice is I realize that 24-7 call for me is like having a 100 leeches all over my body. It's just life sucking. Hmm. I need to have time to unplug away from my phone where I have absolutely no clinical responsibilities. I don't have to worry about somebody's INR. I don't need to take call from the nursing home on whether or not I can give somebody a Duclax. I identified that that was a huge energy drain to me and that for me to pursue my best life and to be the best person I could be, that call was something that was just going to have to be a minimal part, if at all, in my life. And so, you know, part of that, I think, is the experience. Like, you don't know till you know. And so, you know, I think I kind of had to go through those experiences and realize, like, oh, this is how I feel when I do this. Then I also had to have the flip side. I had to have some experiences when those things went away to know how good it is. Like, for instance, like sleep. I think probably from medical school all the way up through, like, that second year of practice, I probably averaged maybe five or six hours of sleep a night Mm -hmm. best. And I really got purposeful about getting good quality of sleep, all electronics out of the room, like blocking light. Like I had small kids. So I mean, there was still a little bit of sleep disturbance, but really eliminating all the stuff that we have as a physician, like the call, for instance, being on call and taking calls at 2 Mm a.m. And when I started consistently getting eight hours of sleep a night, oh my God, it's better than any medication that you could ever give me when it comes to the next day and the next day after that when I have good quality of sleep. But I didn't know that because I'd been sleep surprised for decades Mm -hmm. that I had to, once I started realigning and seeing like, wow, this like feels a hundred times better. Then it's just like, Aaron, you got to get sleep. No, absolutely. You know, you serve as a prime example for both female and male physicians in the system to, you know, know and understand that 
They don't have to be part of the system. They can find a niche outside of the system and that they have the ability to practice medicine on their own terms. They just have to figure it out how. So like what advice can you give, you know, give me, give your colleagues in terms of handling work-related stress and what tips do you have on how to be successful as a physician, but at the same time have a healthy work-life balance? All right. So let's tackle that first question first mm-hmm. on, you know, what are my tips as far as, as going into this? I think first and foremost, we all have to recognize our humanness. That was one of my big shortcomings. I just treated myself like a machine and just kept hammering through, hammering through. Like mm-hmm. I mentioned about, you know, being super mom or superwoman, like it was just like one more thing that I just would add on and really didn't even look at my own health, my own well-being, anything like that. So I would say first and foremost, like at some point, you have to look at your own life and be like, am I being a human? Are my needs being met? And, you know, like I mentioned about the sleep. The other thing, too, I mean, I mentioned pretty thoroughly, like I was a college athlete. Fitness has always been a big part of my life. And that totally went to the wayside. Running became a stress reliever, but yet it was almost like a a punishment to myself. Like, well, you haven't ran in Mm -hmm. like three weeks, so you better go out Mm -hmm. and run five miles today. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so important that we we step back at some point and say, you're going to have feelings. You're going to have hurts. You definitely have needs like eat, sleep, pee. And we've got to start focusing in on that because eventually the machine breaks down. I'm an example that, I mean, you could just get cracked and it's far easier to catch it earlier in the process than getting all the way to a situation that, that you just feel broken mm-hmm. and then have to kind of repair from there. So I would say, you know, recognizing your humanness. And then second, realizing that the people you are taking care of are going to impact you and you have got to have some way to debrief from that. Mm-hmm. Be it that you, you hire a coach like what I do for most of our peers, just to help them work through that. If it's therapy, if it's a religious place, wherever, we all need some place that we can go and be the person under the white coat to be able to take off the white coat and say, hey, I got some hurts under here and I just need to talk about that. I think HIPAA sometimes hurts young physicians because we're not sure exactly what we can talk about, who we can talk about it to, the amount of detail. And so I really think there needs to be more education with trainees talking about it's healthy to debrief from these cases and you absolutely must do it Mm -hmm. because I kept so much inside, so many, even if it wasn't a bad outcome, maybe it was just something that, that brought up all the feels in me when it came from a patient encounter. And I think that's a safe space to go to that and talk through that in a non-judgmental zone. And I didn't feel like I had that in residency. And definitely when I got out to practice, I definitely didn't have anybody to do that with. My code word for my husband was, it's been a bad day. And he would know that he just needed to like leave me alone and don't talk to me for a couple hours. And then eventually I learned how I could communicate how I felt without breaking HIPAA violation, you know, without breaking HIPAA to talk through what was going on with me. Mm-hmm. And and that's important for people to realize that you, you have to do that. So I would say those would be my tips for your first question. Your second question about how can you maintain work-life balance? I think it's important to think of work-life balance like a teeter-totter. It's dynamic. It's not stationary. You mm-hmm. don't just like do a formula and then it sticks there forever like a bridge. It's a very fluid. And so there's times in your life 
where work is going to take and draw a lot of energy. Your teeter-totter is going to dip. But then you need to recognize, hey, we're dipping, so I need to back off from this and flow more of my energies into what brings me joy, into my family, into my own health and wellness and well-being. You know, it's okay to tip for a little while, but you've got to got to reach back that equilibrium. And the other thing, too, is I would tell people with work-life balance is that if you get that feeling like this is just not right, I feel stuck, I don't know what it is, but it's just this is not jiving with me, mm-hmm. I think that's your intuition telling you, hey, you need to look around. Are you in alignment with who you are, what your values are, what your goals are in life. Mm-hmm. Because typically when that resistance happens, and to me it feels like rubbing my hand on an unsanded piece of wood. Like it doesn't evidently inflict injury, but it just feels really rough. Then that lets me know to step back and stop and reevaluate, hey, what's what's going on with this right now? Mm-hmm. So listening to that that resistance. I think the advice that you gave is absolutely priceless. You know, it's something that I know I can implement, you know, being completely fresh out of residency and, you know, learning how to navigate the system. And I'm sure our colleagues who are listening can also implement. One of the last questions, you know, I have, and I think it's a tough question that I usually ask a lot of physicians and I get different responses. I'm excited to see what your response would be. You know, depression, it's a very widespread phenomena. It's often tagged as a serious disorder and it's usually not attended to especially when it comes to the healthcare professionals, specifically physicians. What is your take on suicide caused by depression among medical professionals? I think it's just essential. It's why I do this work with physician life coaching, because no one should want to kill themselves over their job. To me, it's just deplorable that we keep spouting the statistics that Physicians are at least two more times likely than the general public to commit suicide. That no longer can we just talk about it. We have to be doing things about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the discussion comes up, you know, is it depression? Is it burnout? Is it, is it moral injury? Is it work-related stress? I don't think it matters what we name it. I think what we have to start recognizing is that it's real and that it's happening and that we can't just twiddle our thumbs and say, well, yeah, it's what's going on. We need action. And that's what I really encourage anybody who's listening, who's out there and they've done their PHQ-9 scores like I did. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, well, my PHQ-9 is worse than this patient that I'm getting ready to start on Zoloft. Mm-hmm. And just having that resistance to seek help because I feel like as a physician, there's so many barriers put up. It's like, what if somebody finds out? Are they going to say I'm not competent? Is this going to be reported to the state board? Am I going to lose my license? Am I not going to be able to provide for my family and pay for my student loans because I told someone? And those are real challenges. I hope to provide a safe place for physician colleagues where they can come to me because that's one of my questions that I ask when I, I start working with somebody is, do you have hope? Because we know that if a physician says, no, I don't have hope, they are at an extremely high rate risk for suicide. And the thing is with physicians, there's no second chances. We know how to do it. We know how to end life. We know how to keep life going. And so when a physician makes the decision to end their life for whatever reasons, if they believe that they're stuck, that they have no other options, that there's no hope for them at the end of the day, then it happens. You know, I've been in situations where I've talked to physician colleagues and I'm like, you know, are you are you having suicidal thoughts? And they say, yeah, and you're the first person that I've told. 
and I think this comes back from my family medicine training is we shouldn't get scared and just send them to the ER and, and like be like, I can't talk to you anymore and treat them like a third grader. Like that's where we need to really mm-hmm. bind arms together and say, I understand and I'm here for you. And I don't see that happening on a large scale in the physician community. I think there's a surge coming. I think there's more people like me who are talking about it and saying, this is real. We need to talk about this and we need to have more available resources. And we need to break the stigma of mental health that I think is even stronger for physicians than the typical layperson. So I, as you can tell, I'm super passionate about it. And I just want anybody to know who's out there that change is possible. Your current reality, it will not be your forever reality, but suicide is a forever solution. And it's something that you're taking a situation that it can very easily be changed and that help is available for anyone. I hope it's absolutely available. Now, is it going to be easy? No. But you know what? Medical school wasn't easy. Being a physician is easy. You can do hard things. And this may just be the next hard thing that you need to combat. Absolutely. I think what you mentioned earlier and you, as I'd say, hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that physicians are afraid to talk about what they have, their issues, their concerns, because they're concerned about how they'll get labeled by their employer, the board, They're afraid that they'll lose their license. And I think that in itself is a huge problem in the medical world and hence why it's become such a big issue in terms of depression and suicide. And there is a movement, though it's, you know, I think more prevalent starting in medical schools where we are addressing the stress factor related with medical education. However, when it comes to the real world, I don't think, you know, we are close to being ready as physicians to trust the system, but that's where you come in. I think physicians, uh, and it's unfortunate, but it's true, physicians themselves have to figure out how to, you know, resolve the issues, the challenges, the dilemmas that they've come up with while being forced by bureaucratic control of how to do their jobs. Just like, you know, there's a large group of physicians already in the process of finding a solution to primary care, you know, you have started this niche where you're offering your services to physicians who absolutely will need them in confidence, knowing that if they speak with you, they absolutely do not have to be worried about, you know, anyone else knowing about the issues that they have, and then they can get help. So I think it's other physicians being part of this solution that is absolutely needed And we are working ourselves to figure out the solutions as opposed to relying on the government or any others, which I think is the way to go personally. Yeah, I think so too. You know, and you're speaking about medical students. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that first-year students entering medical education are some of the healthiest and most resilient individuals in the U.S. When they re-surveyed those students at the end of medical school, they were actually doing far worse than their age-related peers. I I think it is an individual issue, but I also am very passionate about saying that this is a systemic issue, that no matter how healthy a fish is, if you put it into a, a toxic tank, it will get sick and die. And that's where I've been really empowered lately, and especially with the research that's coming out and showing that culture is so important, um, systems for which 
physicians function in are so important. And that only personal resiliency and personal wellness is only about a third of the equation. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a physician life coach. I love helping people with their personal wellness and getting them healthy enough. But that's the problem with the physician community right now is we are not as a whole in a healthy enough position to go to bat for these system changes. And so that's why I encourage everybody, you've got to take care of yourself. That's why it's the name of my podcast, Dr. Me First. Take care of yourself first so that then together we can all bind arms and we can work on changing these systems. We can work on finding innovative, creative ways for which to practice our art of medicine and to take great care of patients and to do it in a way that is both sustainable for the system, but also sustainable for the individual. Absolutely. And before we wrap this up, just one more question. Uh, It's a personal question. And I think based on what we've talked, I I don't know if you'd give a different answer, but I'm just curious, you know, if you didn't become a physician, what would you be? You know, I've thought about that question a lot since you had sent it to me. I don't know what, which journey, which path my life would have taken otherwise. You know, if I had for some reason, just backed out and and not started medical school. I think I probably would have gotten an advanced degree. Maybe it would have been like a a master's in social work or counseling. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But on that fun end, I would definitely have been a party planner. (laughs) And, you know, that's the great thing of my job now is I've realized there is things about me that I, I absolutely love doing. I mentioned I was the biology club president. I planned two great camping excursions for us while I was in college. And now I get to do that as a life coach for other adults to do fun things and to do self-improvement. So, you know, full circle, I think what I would be doing is what I'm doing exactly right now. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Wiseman, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I really hope that, you know, I can have you again on the show in the near future. And those who have listened, especially physicians, should know that they can reach out to her as needed and know that there are other physicians out there that are there for you and that you're not by yourself. So thank you so much, Dr. Weisman, for being on the show. Absolutely. And I'd love to come back anytime. Absolutely. I look forward to having you. If you'd like to contact the show, please email me at doctorsdilemmapod at gmail.com. That is doctorsdilemmapod at gmail.com. D-O-C-T-O-R-S-D-I-L-E-M-M-A-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. got some really important stuff to share with you. Besides developing Dr. Me First over the last, I don't know, I think it's like seven or eight years now, and Burnt Out to Badass, which is a little bit newer. It's been going on for about three to four years. I've actually been developing another business kind of on the side. And a lot of you folks are surprised when you hear about it. It's called Physician Coaching Alliance. And it does a lot of amazing things. First of all, if you're a chief wellness officer or you want to see more wellness in your organization, hospital, medical group, residency program, etc., Physician Coaching Alliance is your answer. 
We do consulting and coaching within organizations to bring better wellness into the healthcare space. So you need to go over to the website, physiciancoachingalliance.com, drop me an email with the organization, who I contact, who I talk to, and we can come in and help your institution. The other part of Physician Coaching Alliance is for those who are looking for a personal coach. Of course, I would love to be your coach, but I also know that I'm not everybody's Well, taste and spicy sauce, let's put it that way. So there we have a menu of over 70 coaches who specialize in so many different things, who come from different parts of medicine. Some people are in medicine, some people are out of medicine, some people are hybrid. It's just an amazing group of an eclectic amount of skills and personalities. I'm sure you can find your next coach there. So again, same website, physiciancoachingalliance.com. And lastly, if you are a coach and you're tired of going in alone, maybe you're in a slump, maybe you just want to be around other physician coaches who are willing to give and are over the hustle culture and not about competing with each other, but knowing that how we heal healthcare is better together. Then also Physician Coaching Alliance is the place for you. PCA fulfills so many of these needs and more. It's all on the same website, physiciancoachingalliance.com. You can hang out with us on LinkedIn and on Instagram by the exact same name, physiciancoachingalliance.com. Yep, I've been busy. running multiple companies, practicing medicine, taking care of alpacas. But you know what? It is my heart and joy to do this. And I hope that PCA can become a part of your story too. Check, check, check.